For our scripture reading, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 10. That can be found on page 61 in your pew Bible. We continue the sermon series on the plagues and the Passover. Here we have recorded the eighth plague, or as we've been hearing in the past several sermons, the eighth sign or wonder of God. That's how God referred to these plagues. He referred to them as mighty works, mighty signs, mighty miracles. Beginning at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 10, let us now hear God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country." And they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is, in ru- is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our, son, our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. 
Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. As far the reading of his word, may it his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the plagues of Egypt, or more accurately, the miraculous signs and wonders of God, are intensifying. Last week, the great hailstorm, with its thunder and lightning, destroyed people, cattle, and crops that were in the fields. God sent the full force of his judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt, and the full force of his judgment continues to be poured out upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the eighth plague, and then in the ninth plague, and then finally in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Like all of the miraculous signs and wonders, the plague of locusts demonstrates several things that we have seen already. The unlimited power of God over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. We've seen that over and over again. We've also seen that Egypt and Pharaoh will know that God is Lord in all the earth. So God is Lord and has unlimited power over all the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh himself. And all the people of Egypt will know that he is God in all the earth. He is Lord. And that thirdly, that God's name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Among all nations. And as the plagues intensify or progress, God further reveals his purposes in the plagues. And we see this even in the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. And so first, the purposes of the plague, again, is to strike at the heart of Egypt's religion and Egypt's gods. He strikes at their religion, their world and life view. That's what God does to human beings. That's how he converts us. He, we recognize our sin and rebellion and idolatry. God pricks our hearts by the Spirit. He reveals to us our idolatry. And we turn from idolatry and turn to the true and living God. So God strikes at the heart of their religion. And last week I've talked about two gods in particular. Remember the god Nut or Nut, who is the goddess of the sky? And we have hail coming down from the sky, thunder coming from the sky. And God is attacking that particular god. And then you have Seth, who is the god of storms and chaos. These two gods are also being judged by the Lord and attacked by the Lord in this plague as well. But in this plague particularly, there are a number of gods that we can say are being attacked. There's a god who was called a minor god and who protected Egypt from pests. 
His name was Senehem. And he was the pest control god in their day. They would offer sacrifices to protect crops from this pest control god. And so he protected Egypt. And the head of this god was a locust with a man's body. But then you had the god Min, who was the patron god of crops. You had Nepri, who was the god of grain. You had Anubis, who was the god of the fields. All these gods that were petitioned by the Egyptians to protect them and have a good and, and beneficial harvest are being attacked by the Lord God, who is God in all the earth. The Egyptians served and appealed to these gods to have fruitful harvest season, but they were proven impotent or powerless to the God of the Hebrews. They were brought to nothing before the Lord. Isn't it like God to bring idolatry to nothing? Isn't it like God to strike at the very foundations of our hearts of idolatry? Well, there's another purpose that's in our text. The first purpose, the attack against the religion of the Egyptians and their worldview is throughout all the plagues. More specifically here, we have in verses 1 to 2, where the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may, sh I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs they have done among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord." So now Moses is commanded to tell his own people the wonders and signs of God. Before it was tell the Egyptians that there is none like God in all the earth. Now he's like, now tell the future generations, your children and your children's children, the great things that the Lord has done among the enemies of God. How the Lord, do you hear that phrase, dealt harshly? Literally in the Hebrew, that can be translated mocked. How the Lord mocked Israel's captors. We only need to look back at chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, where we hear of the Egyptians dealing harshly with Israel. But now is turning, God is turning the tables and saying how he is dealing harshly mocking the Egyptians and Pharaoh himself who has hardened his heart and exalted himself before Israel. God dealt harshly with a nation who dealt harshly with them, Israel. And Moses shall tell the next generation of the Lord's triumph over Pharaoh in Egypt. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. How the Lord triumphs over the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Don't miss that. The Lord triumphed over the enemies, enemies of God and God saved His people. 
And each generation must hear and learn about these miracles, about these signs that God triumphs over the gods of Egypt, over the gods of this world, and over the powers of evil, namely Pharaoh. Because salvation is from the Lord. In fact, when they came out of Egypt, Pharaoh, or Moses rather, meets his father-in-law at chapter 18, verse 7 and following. Listen to what is said here. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And then they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told, told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And listen, verse 9 of chapter 18, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. You hear that? Are you listening? You see and hear what Jethro's responsive responses after he hears the good news of what God has done, the purpose of these plagues? Jethro rejoices, and now he knows that there is no God like the Lord, and that the Lord is greater than all gods. I can go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Tell your children and your children's children, teaching the gospel begins in the home. Parents, the gospel, the teaching of it, the telling of it, begins in the home. Fathers and mothers telling your children and then your children's children, grandparents telling your grandchildren of what? Of the great things that God has done, that there's no Savior and Lord like Jesus Christ. It's taught certainly in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the pillar and buttress of truth. And oh, how churches in this world have gone astray into falsehood and lies and bought into the lie of the devil. The family, the home, the church. Each generation tells the next generation that God's Son, Jesus, became man and gave His life as a sacrifice for sins. And having been raised from the dead, He gives eternal life and usher in the new creation. That He is the Word of life, the Word of God incarnate. And that we learn of this Christ in Scripture which is the infallible, inerrant rule of faith and life for His people. So you tell each generation what God has done as revealed in His Word, the Bible. People seek signs and wonders today, but Jesus says the only sign that this generation will receive is the sign of Jonah. 
Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for, or the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and be raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is where the power of God lies. And the resurrected Christ is raising spiritually dead people. And we tell each generation of the power of Christ and His glorious resurrection from the dead. Because listen, friends, listen. By His death and resurrection, Jesus destroyed death and the powers in hell and evil. Jesus triumphed over the powers of hell. Triumphed over Satan who was working through Pharaoh. Jesus triumphed. And He sets captives free. And sets free those who have fear of death. If you're taking notes, Colossians 2, verse 15, where Jesus does what? By His cross, He disarms rulers and authorities and principalities, triumphing over them. And we are to tell the next generation, tell our children, Jesus triumphed. Jesus is Lord. There is none like Him. Is that happening in your home? Is that happening in your home? In our homes? Listen, it takes one generation to neglect telling the next generation it takes one generation to see truth vanquished and eventually disappear. And then you have subsequent generations that are not following the Lord and His Word and trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It takes one generation, that's it. By the grace of God and His Spirit, we need to be praying that we would be a people who tell and teach each generation the mighty works of Jesus Christ. The mighty works found in His Word. Not only what He has done for us, but also how we are to live our lives in light of what He has done for us. Live in gratitude to Him. It's not just an intellectual exercise, in other words. It's something that penetrates the hearts. And we pray that the Spirit of God penetrates hearts of children, adults, seniors. We are blessed with many young children and young people here at Emmanuel. What if Emmanuel neglected to tell our children? Have you considered that? What if we neglected to teach and catechize? What then? Abraham Kuyper wrote, A church which does not teach her youth can never hope to retain a confession, but relinquishes it, cuts off all contact with the past, divorces herself from the fathers, and forms a new group. If you desire to confess, you must learn. The purpose of this plague is to teach and tell the next generation. 
And then we have, in verse 3 and following, the, perp, uh, the pride of Pharaoh. Look with me in your Bibles. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me, for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. God gives Pharaoh time to think about it. Tomorrow, this is going to happen. To think it over. But as we know already, Pharaoh's heart is already exalted, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. As we said in the past several sermons, God hardens Pharaoh's heart to fulfill his purposes and will, to demonstrate his power and his judgments. This is a great mystery. But here we have the pride of Pharaoh when he's confronted by God himself through the mediator Moses. With authority, Moses speaks to Pharaoh as if he is God. And then he leaves Pharaoh's presence boldly. After he tells him this is going to happen, if you don't submit yourself to the Lord, this is going to happen. You will be consumed. Your land will be consumed. And then Moses, like a mic drop, leaves Pharaoh's presence. Which in those days, that was bad protocol. You don't do that. You don't leave a king's presence like Pharaoh. But Pharaoh is mocked by Moses when Moses gives the command of the Lord and he leaves, turns his back on Moses and leaves. Even Pharaoh's servants say, how long shall this man Moses be a snare to us, a trap? They too had enough. They have seen the ruin of Egypt as a result of Pharaoh's pride. They say, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand Egypt is ruined? So even Pharaoh's servants recognize Pharaoh's hardened heart. But God already commanded Pharaoh through Moses to let all the people go. Why do these servants say, let these men go? Well, in those days among the Egyptians, the men were the ones who would go out to worship on behalf of the family. In fact, in the Israelite community, later on in the Old Testament, men went to festivals, and it was permissible for them to represent families in going to festivals and sacrifices. But God is saying, let all my people go. They will all go, men, women, and children, animals and beasts, flocks and herds. Pharaoh tries to save face and let them go while they still have some crops and fruit left in the land. But he tries to negotiate with God. He tries to negotiate. And so he invites Moses and Aaron back into his presence. And he says, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are, you to, which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. There's sarcasm there. There's actually irony here. Pharaoh is sneering at Moses. I'm king here, is what Pharaoh is saying. If the Lord lets you go, 
then you know that the Lord is with you. But I'm not going to let you go. No. You're going to know that I'm king and Lord because I'm exalting myself before you. And he says to Moses and Pharaoh, get out of my presence. Get out. Congregation, I want us to take our eyes away from Pharaoh for a moment. I want our our eyes to be placed on our own hearts here. Because the pride of Pharaoh is not something that's distant in history. The pride of Pharaoh is something that exists in human hearts. Perhaps somebody here watching via live stream. Is your heart hardened toward God? You're grasping on to the idols of your heart. Let us look at our own hearts in the mirror of God's word and law. And as Peter says, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. To be exalted, one must be humbled first. Have you been humbled by the mighty hand of God? It's easy for us to look at Pharaoh, and rightly so, a tyrant. But pride takes various forms. We need look only in our own hearts. And that's that's where we must start. Are we saying to God, get out of my presence? God, get away from me. Turn from me, O Lord. I don't want to hear it. I want to live my own life. I want to exalt myself. I want to do my thing. I'm happy and content with my idols because they're making me happy, or so you think, or so I think. Only for those idols to come back and bite hard. You see, though we're distanced historically, the heart of man has never changed. Pride is pride. And we need only to look in our own heart because we can say to Jesus, get out of my presence. I want nothing to do with you and your salvation, your cross, your resurrection. Pharaoh exalted himself, hardened his heart, and yet at the same time, God hardened his heart. And consequently, we have the destruction of Egypt. Of the ten plagues or miraculous signs, the plagues of Egypt, or the plague of locusts, relates more closely in modern history. For example, even in the late 1800s, mid-1800s, you had many locust plagues in the Grand Canyon Valley area. In this country, in 1950s, East Africa experienced the longest locust plague covering 5 million square miles, twice the size of the U.S. It estimated 10 billion locusts devoured, invaded the land, and brought great devastation and famine. In 1986, 40 of 54 African countries were invaded, depriving people of food, causing a great famine. 
That one lasted three years. An estimated 60 billion locusts cover that land, and it costs about $400 million to fight against the locusts. Farmers lost an approximate amount of $2.5 billion. So it's not only destruction of the land of Egypt, but the economy as well. Pharaoh was brought to his knees. Locusts can travel up to 100 miles in one day, turning green plush land into a desert. As the east wind came, all day and all night, and then the next day you had millions upon millions, billions of locusts cover the entire land of Egypt, except where the Israelites were. The plagues of the past two centuries do not compare to the locust plague in Egypt when the full force of God's judgment covered the land. Moses lifted up his staff, that is the staff of God, over the land of Egypt, and the east wind began to blow towards Egypt. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do a search of the east wind. Just do a search on Bible Gateway or something on east wind and how God executes his will using an east wind. Interesting study. The weather prediction of an east, strong east wind came all day and all night, and that tomorrow came and arrived, and so did a great army of locusts invade the land. Too many to count. Completely. Did you notice? The land was completely dark, covering the entire land. Imagine your ears hearing the munching of the green plants and the fruit on the trees just chomping away at the land. Not only that, but having your houses filled with locusts. It was so devastating that it brought Pharaoh and Egypt to their needs. And right here we have, like in previous plagues, the narrative takes us back to creation. You have a decreation narrative here. The reversal of creation. Because in the garden you have God speaking His powerful word and bringing about every plant and tree to bring forth food. And God saw His creation and said it was good. And He did so when the earth was formless, remember? Formless and void. And God brought plants and trees for food. And what happens here? You have a reversal of creation you have the place of Egypt, the land of Egypt, becoming nearly formless and void. Inhabitable. Why is this important? In these plagues, God strikes Egypt in the land. He makes it a desert place. He makes it a desert place like the beginning of creation when it was formless and void. And this isn't the last time we hear of locusts. We hear it in Joel, and we hear it in Revelation chapter 9, in the fifth trumpet, when locusts will be sent to bring judgment upon the land. 
for those who do not have the mark of God on them, who are not saved by the blood of Jesus. Lastly, the result of the plague, death encompassed Pharaoh, and he can take it no longer. And he's at a point of desperation. At verse 16, look with me in your Bible. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. We've heard this confession of sin before. Even though his repentance wasn't genuine, Moses still intercedes and pleads with the Lord. We know that Pharaoh has a false repentance, an ingenuine repentance. He does not care. But he comes across as genuinely repenting. But God, by his grace, hears Moses' prayer Moses pleads with the Lord in verse 19, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Where did they go? They were sent into the Red Sea. Not one locust remained. They will die and perish in the Red Sea. Hmm, what happens later? Who will perish in the Red Sea? What is this foreshadowing? When the Egyptians want to attack and go after the Israelites, who will be found in the Red Sea? The army of Egypt. The Lord answered the prayer of Moses. And the locusts left. God hardened Pharaoh's heart again. And Pharaoh knew that he would not let the people go. The curse is removed from the land. And we've seen this over and over again. And I want you to hear me well on this point. The curse is removed from the land. Congregation, how is the curse and judgment of God removed from us? Because only God can remove the curse of God. Plead with your God because only God can remove the plague of locusts. Only God can remove the curse of God. And to remove the curse entirely from sinners, God removed the curse of the law of sin and death by sending His Son who became a curse for us. God sent His Son. God the Son bore the curse of the law of sin and death by becoming a curse for us. Becoming the sin bearer, the curse bearer, so that we in Christ have eternal life, that we in Christ have redemption and salvation, that we in Christ will leave the land of Egypt 
No longer in slavery to sin. No longer in bondage to Satan and his minions. Because only Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave. Only Jesus Christ triumphed over our enemies. And because we are found in Him, we triumph over our enemies. When you are in despair, when you question your assurance of salvation, when you doubt, know, Christian, that Jesus triumphed. And because you are found in Jesus, because He bore the curse of God, on the cross, because He triumphed over the grave, you have triumphed with Him. And no one can snatch you out of His hands. He is yours. You are His. That is the promise to the Christian, those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And this becomes more and more clear as we approach the last sign, the death of the firstborn, and God's way of escape and refuge in the death and sacrifice of the Lamb, whose blood will be put on the doorpost and lintels of your home. Only God can remove the curse of God. Only God can triumph over the enemies of God. Jesus is the one, the God-man who triumphed for us so that in Him we too are more than conquerors. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank You that in Christ alone we have the victory. That in Christ He has purchased for us an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation through His cross. He triumphed over the powers of evil and Satan himself. In His resurrection, He triumphed over the grave. And so that in faith, in His great name, we too have triumphed. For we have died with Christ when He was crucified and our sins were nailed to the cross with Him. And we were raised to new life with Christ in His resurrection. And therefore we know this victory, this triumph through faith in Christ. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that this triumph in Christ would grant us, O oh Lord, spiritual strength for each day that we face. Knowing that Jesus is Lord of all the earth. And that in Him we have the victory because He invaded this earth with His righteousness and His perfection. He invaded the powers of evil and has won. Jesus is Lord. And now in Him we can say a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that You would grant us Your peace and your strength to live day by day in Christ and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.